this week after, am I okay? Uh, thanks, after being sick, so uh, I'll push hard. You guys will have to endure. Let me pray before we start. Lord, your word is truth, and thinking of Jesus' words in John 8, uh, the Son and the truth set us free. And I ask in your Son's name that this morning uh, the power of your Son by your Spirit's presence with us, Lord, and the truth of your Word would be real to us in a way that is life-changing and transforming and indeed brings freedom in our lives in all the ways you want it to. Lord, as always, we simply ask that you would use your Word this morning for each one of us so that we get what you want for us no more and no less in Jesus' name. I mentioned Oscar Wilde a couple weeks ago. Uh, we've been in Genesis. We'll be in Genesis again this morning. Um, a couple weeks ago, Oscar Wilde was a semi-modern version of a character like we saw a lot in Genesis 18 and particularly in Genesis 19. And this guy that had so much and was privileged and had so much of what the world has to offer and yet lost it all, really a, a tragic life. Uh, Oscar Wilde, not a guy to model your life on, but again, as we said, he produced some great literature. And I wanted to start with an introduction this morning that came from one of his very shortest of short stories called The Model Millionaire. The Model Millionaire. This in my book, this story only lasts about three pages, three and a half pages long. But in it, there's a young man named Huey. And Huey is deeply in love with Laura. And Laura's the daughter of a retired army colonel. And he's kind of a spit and polished guy and thinks things should be done in a certain way, proper order and all that. He's told Huey he cannot propose to his daughter until he has at least 10,000 pounds, British sterling. We're talking about a Brit writer here 100 years ago. 10,000 pounds to his credit. Now, Huey knows this is a problem because he's got this little stipend he lives on and no more. And, and 10,000 pounds is simply out of his reach. Well, He's going to visit a painter, friend of his, and I'll read Wilde's words here for you. It says, When Huey came in, he found Alan Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man with a face like wrinkled parchment and a moist, and excuse me, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulder was flung a coarse brown cloak all tears and tatters. His thick boots were patched and cobbled, and with one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Alan at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. My stars, what an etching Rembrandt would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. And while Alan leaves the art studio, Huey takes the little bit of money out of his pocket that he has to his name, and he goes and he gives it to the bedraggled beggar, feeling very sorry for him. Later, when Huey meets up with Alan again, Alan tells him that the model that he gave the money to is now his devoted friend, and, and that Alan had gone on and explained to the beggar model Huey's predicament that he wanted to propose this young gal but had no means to do so. And, and Huey's incensed. And he gets red and angry. 
a complaining that his friend made these sort of delicate matters known to a guy that he doesn't know at all, the, the beggar. My dear boy, said Alan, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital and dines off gold plates. Baron Hosberg is a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures, and gave me a commission to paint him as a beggar. Well, Hugh's embarrassed, of course. He goes home. The next morning, a letter is hand-delivered to Huey, and on the outside it reads, A wedding present to Hugh Erskine and Laura Merton from an old beggar. And inside is a check for 10,000 pounds. Wilde continues, When they were married, Alan Trevor was the best man, and the Baron made a speech at the wedding breakfast. Millionaire models, remarked Alan, are rare enough, but model millionaires are rarer still. Model millionaires are rarer still. A beggar who's not really a beggar. And appearances can be deceiving, and people aren't always what they appear, aren't always what they seem to be. We're not necessarily sure who is who and what is what sometimes based on appearances. I tell this as an introduction to Genesis 20, which is a semi-comedic account, including our hero Abraham. If you remember Genesis 19, we concluded a judgment passage. Lot and his family had been delivered from Sodom and the rest of the cities of the plain were destroyed by God's fire and judgment. And we go back to Abraham and his company and entourage this morning, Genesis 20. If you have a bulletin, there's, uh, there's handouts there, study guides. If you need some, I think we've got some extras if anyone would like anybody. Does anybody need study handouts? Yeah, a couple over here. I'm reading from New American Standard, Genesis 20. Now, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he journeyed or sojourned in Gerar. And by the way, it's it's a bit uh, disconcerting perhaps, but I'm going to interject comments here for brevity's sake this morning. So Abraham had been up in Mamre, and this had been south a little bit from the city of Hebron today east of the, or excuse me, west of the Dead Sea. Then he goes down southeast in the south country. The Negev just means into the south. Then he comes back up into the territory that would have later been called the Philistine area there in Gerar. Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And hopefully this sounds familiar. He had said the same thing in Egypt in Genesis 12 when he generated some very similar problems there too. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And sorry, by the way, Abimelech, Abimelech, uh, father and king. Uh, My father is king or father king. Uh, So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken. She is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said... Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. By the way, that's the first term 
first use of the term in the Bible applied here to Abraham, a prophet, someone who speaks for God. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. I assume Abraham assumes the worst of Gerar and Abimelech and his people as he might have the folks that he knew had been in Sodom. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Uh, we do not practice close uh, marriages with close relationships like this today, obviously, but that was still common in this time. It came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, gave them to Abraham and restored his wife, Sarah, to him. Abraham again is profiting by the deception here, just as he had in Egypt. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother, and I hope you catch this. I assume he says this tongue-in-cheek, your brother slash husband, a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There's a number of things we won't go into this morning just for time's sake. And let me mention just a few, just so I've mentioned them to you. You can think about this or look at these later. On one hand, you've got in this story another occasion which there's these forces or dynamics that are in play in which it looks like God's promised Abraham and Sarah are threatened something that could come in and disrupt God's plan for the son of promise to be born. And yet, of course, at the end of the day, God's going to make sure that what he said would happen and they'll get that son. But here's Abraham's wife in another man's harem. Is she pregnant yet? If she's not, she's supposed to get pregnant by Abraham to fulfill the promise. You can just see this is another incident in which God's promise looks like it's being imperiled. Another point is God took it very seriously when one man took another man's wife. You know, in our day and age, uh, our sense of morality is pretty low levels. But this threat was because Abimelech had taken a woman who belonged to another man, another man's wife. God took it very seriously. Another point that we won't develop is that it was God that prevented the women in Abimelech's household from having children. And you know, in the Scriptures, God paints Himself as the one who opens or closes the womb, something that we sort of take for granted in our scientific age. Doesn't happen naturally. We can make it happen by our, you know, manipulation of science. That's not always the case. God opened and closed the womb. And another thing, of course, was simply that children were desirable. That 
the curse was that they couldn't have children. And again, in our culture, you know, many people just think children, children are a curse. But in this day, among the Philistines even, they assumed that to not have children or to not be able to have children was a curse. So anyway, some themes you can look at on your own. One last point there too was just the group guilt. Um, all of Abimelech's household and his nation would suffer for one man's sin. Uh, there's this whole, uh, there's theology in the scriptures just about the guilt that we partake of because of the group we're a part of or because the source of our life, our father, our parentage, who we come from, who we belong to. Again, a huge theme that we won't develop this morning, but something you can think about anyway. Where we're going to park and hang our hat this morning is just looking at Abimelech and Abraham and contrasting the two. And who's the model millionaire is sort of my question from, from this story this morning, Abimelech or Abraham. Well, first, looking at Abimelech, you know, how refreshing, having just read a story about these Gentiles who who wouldn't know goodness if they saw it in Sodom and God rains down destruction on them and Abraham sort of turns the corner and he runs into this guy that uh, is sort of what is called a righteous Gentile you know in in the text the pages of the scripture you have these guys that look like they're outside the stream of people God's working with and yet you realize they have a fear and a knowledge of God that God commends so we'd already seen Melchizedek earlier in Genesis 13, it's like, where did he come from? And you've got Abimelech here, the same thing. Jethro, the priest of Midian, uh, Moses' father-in-law, same thing. People outside the, the line of promise God was working with, whom the scripture sort of regards as righteous Gentiles. Now, he's a stand-up guy, but when he's laying asleep that night, he knows all of a sudden he's in hot water because God appears and says, Bud... You know, you got trouble. You're a dead man because you have another man's wife. Now, in Abimelech's defense, on the front end of things, we could say Abimelech is right. He looks like a model millionaire to start out here. So, verse 4, when God speaks to him and says, you're a dead man, you've got another man's wife, Abimelech says this, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? I assume he knows what God had just done to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. God had destroyed guilty nations, city-states. And when God threatens him here in his dream, he's like, Lord, we're, we're innocent. I'm innocent. If you remember Abraham's plea, Abraham said, the Lord of all the earth must judge rightly. Lord, you can't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And Abimelech's saying something along that same line here. Lord, we're innocent. What's the deal? You can't destroy an innocent nation. We're innocent. Verse 5, Abimelech points out, it was Abraham who said the woman was his sister, but not his wife. Lord, somebody else is responsible for this. He wasn't just casting blame. He was telling the truth. Right? Because he didn't know Sarah was Abraham's wife. He'd been told, my sister. And he took that at face value. Now, I love this next thought Abimelech shares in verse 5. He says, my conscience is clear, my hands are clean. In the integrity of my heart, he says, and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. You know, having a clear conscience is a wonderful thing. And 
Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one's pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And think of this, Abimelech is being confronted by the God of the universe in his dream. And yet he's able to muster a bold response to God because his conscience is truly clear. He thinks he's in the right. So when God accuses him, he, he puts out his defense. He's bold. And he's only bold because his conscience is clear. As far as he knows, he's done right. He's done no wrong. Having a clear conscience is a great thing. Uh, 1 John three twenty one and 22, John says there, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Having a clear conscience is worth a lot. And Abimelech has a clear conscience so that when he's accused, he responds with boldness, Lord, as far as I know, as far as I'm concerned, my hands are clean. My conscience is clear. I'm good to go. You, you can't buy a clear conscience. To have a clear conscience, and we all sin, we all blow up for sure. And when we do, we need to confess that to the Lord, know that we're forgiven because Jesus shed his blood for us, and go on again with a clear conscience. But this is huge. If someone accuses us and our conscience is clear, we're free to be bold and right up front with our response. If our conscience is gnawing away at us, it's a whole lot harder to respond when an accusation is brought. So he said, Lord, hey, my hands are clean. My conscience is clear. In verse 9, when he goes and confronts Abraham on this, again thinking of Abimelech's righteousness, he says to Abraham, you have brought this guilt on me. You have done things that shouldn't be done. Now he defended himself to God. Now he's defending himself to Abraham. And he said, hey guy, you've brought all this trouble on me. I was doing what I thought was right. You have brought trouble on me and my household. And in verses 14 through 16 You've got Abimelech going above and beyond the call of duty to not only restore Sarah to her husband. He'd taken something that wasn't his to take. Didn't know it, but he did. And he restores Sarah. And then he goes above and beyond the call to make sure that everyone knows he's not holding anything against Abraham and Sarah. And so he gives them the animals and the servants and the silver and he says, you're clear. As far as I'm concerned, you're clear. We're in good standing above and beyond the call to make sure everybody's on the up and up. And last, in verse 6, when God addressed him and spoke to him, God said, I know you acted with a clear conscience. I know you acted with a clear conscience. So on one hand, Abimelech proves himself this stand-up guy. He acts with integrity. He could readily defend himself because his conscience was clear. We could say the clothing Abimelech wore here was righteous or righteousness. He was a model millionaire on one hand. However, on the flip side, he was also wrong. So at verse 3, God says, you have another man's wife. Mistake or not, you have someone, you have something that you weren't free to take. You're not free to possess this person. She's not available to you. And you have her. You've taken something you weren't free to take. He didn't know it, but that was still the fact. You have another man's wife. And then in verse 7, God says, If you don't return Sarah, you and all that's yours will die. And in verse 18, the Lord had prevented conception above 
among Abimelech's household in judgment. Now remember, because God is righteous and cannot judge in a way that's not right, the fact that he threatened Abimelech and had already moved in a form of judgment so that his household couldn't have children, this meant that in all ways Abimelech was not above reproach. He actually had sinned, though his conscience was not aware of it. This brings up a couple of points. Ultimately, for you and I, our conscience is not the ultimate guide as to whether we've done right or wrong. To not violate our conscience is a good thing. It's a great thing. But we can sin and not know it. We can can live short of God's call for our life and sin in ignorance. And we've still sinned. And we're still guilty before a holy God. And we're still culpable for our moral failure, whether we knew it or not. Abimelech had sinned, but he didn't know it. And so on one end, he says, my conscience is clear. And that's a great thing. I don't want to minimize that. My conscience is clear. But at the end of the day, that's not enough. God and his word are ultimately the arbiter of what's right or wrong. And so we can sin and be held guilty by God, a God who can only judge righteously, whether we knew we were sinning at the time or not. And this makes it all the more important again for us to know what God's standard is, how he judges what's right and what's wrong. You know, left to ourselves, our conscience, our minds, our thinking, our thoughts, they're all darkened by our fallen nature. So we have to have a source outside of ourselves that informs our conscience so that we know truly what's right and what's wrong. But though Abimelech had lived up to his conscience, he had still sinned. He was still culpable. God still held him guilty because ultimately our conscience is not the arbiter. God and his word is. And so it's incumbent on us to know what God has said. So on one hand, you have here Abimelech, this outstanding example of a practical kind of righteousness, a man who acted in such a way that he kept a clear conscience, and as far as he knew, he was not violating God or others in his interactions. He looks like a model millionaire. On the other hand, he had sinned. He had taken another man's wife, even though he didn't know it. And that man happened also to be a prophet through whom God was sending the Redeemer of the world. So Abimelech, much to commend him on one hand and yet not guiltless on the other. Contrast him with Abraham. Uh, Abraham is God's friend, you know. He's, he's God's man on the world. He's God's prophet. And yet, you know, he looks more like the beggar in Wild Story here than the model millionaire, doesn't he? I like Abraham. I'm a fan of him. Of his, but he acts out of fear and he imperils his wife and he imperils God's promises to he and to Sarah. So starting with Abraham, what's wrong in the ways that he looked like a beggar in this scene? Verse 5, he did deceive Abimelech when he told his people Sarah was his sister, but didn't also say, and by the way, she's also my wife. He was intentionally deceptive. And that started the trouble. There would be no story There would have been no culpability for Abimelech. There would have been no threat here to God's promise had Abraham told the truth from the start. He didn't. He was intentionally deceptive, and that started this train wreck. In verse 9, Abimelech, as we saw earlier, rightly accuses him of having originated all this trouble. 
for he and his household, for Abimelech's household. And then in verses 11 and 13, and this is the one that gets me time and time again, Abraham puts his own wife in peril for his benefit. You know, we've talked about family sins before. This thing about not treating women right was a family sin for Abraham's family. He'd done this to Sarah before. His son will do this. Lot had done this, his nephew. But here, Abraham is supposed to be Sarah's protector and defender, the one who takes care of her. And yet, out of fear, he uses her as a shield to defend himself. He does not act in a way that's appropriate for his wife. Out of fear, he uses his wife instead of protecting her and caring for her. So here on one hand, Abraham is the one who's been called to be a blessing to the nations. And yet in his interaction in Gerar with Abimelech, he brings a curse instead. He is wrong in the way he interacts with them. And he assumes probably that everyone's like the folks in Sodom and Gomorrah were. And it was a stereotype in his mind that simply was not true. And so out of fear, not faith, he practices his deception and he starts the snowball of trouble rolling because he wasn't trusting in God and he originates this trouble. So Abraham's wrong. He looks like the beggar, not the model millionaire. But on the other hand, he's also right. Or we could say he's righteous still. So verse 7, God says of Abraham, he's my prophet. Abraham's my man. The guy you've sinned against, he's my man. He's my spokesman. Now, Abraham doesn't live up to his calling, but Abraham still is in a personal relationship with God. So you go back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. He's in a special relationship because God called him to it. But then also in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness He's in a personal relationship with God in which God has declared Abraham righteous just as he had Lot, a personal righteousness, again, ultimately based on the Lord Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But Abraham, in God's eyes, was righteous, had right standing before God, not because of the way he was living or because his life was entirely above reproach, but because through faith, Abraham had trusted himself to the Lord and had a righteousness that was positional. And if you, this is a great reminder. Uh, we, t- we often get confused on this whole thing. We are called, if you're in a relationship with God through Christ, you have a positional righteousness. That is, it's a righteousness that's imputed to us. It's not a, re- a righteousness that we sum up out of ourselves or we produce. Um, If you meet Christians who don't think they sin, that have a practical righteousness that's consistent, that person has troubles, I I guarantee. The Scripture's clear. 1 John's clear. James' clear. We all sin in many ways. All of us sin. And so the righteousness that we see here is an imputed positional righteousness that we enjoy ultimately in Christ. It's not something that they're practicing themselves every day perfectly. It doesn't happen that way. Abraham and Lot both were reminders to us that the righteousness we enjoy in Christ is positional. It's an imputed righteousness. It's not a righteousness we earn. 
It's, it's not a standing that we put up on our own. It's through Christ and Christ alone. And then last, in verse 17, Abraham's right. Abraham prayed and God answered and healed Abimelech's household. God is still listening to and answering the prayers of his man, Abraham. So, on one hand, you've got this Gentile king, Abimelech, who looks righteous, but is still held as guilty before God. And you've got the prophet Abraham who looks guilty, but remains righteous. Who's the beggar and who's the model millionaire? Who's the beggar? Who's the model millionaire? Winding down just on points of application, let me suggest two. The first is faith. You know, the scripture's clear in the New Testament, the just live by faith. Faith is supposed to be the modus operandi, the, the standard operating procedure we live in as a Christian, that we believe God and his word and we act on that. When you and I start responding to life out of fear, we have left faith behind. And what we choose to do will be what seems right to us at the time. It might be in line with what our conscience says is okay, but it won't be according to God and his word or his will. None of this trouble would have happened None of this story would have ensued if Abraham was in this point of time was walking by faith, was trusting God. But he responds out of fear and all this trouble begins. And for us as Christians to walk by faith, to choose to believe that what God has said is true and to entrust ourselves to his care, this is, this is supposed to be the way we live day by day. This keeps us out of all kinds of trouble. Now, I don't know what this would look like for each one of us here God has made lots of promises to us as a Christian. Um, he gives us eternal life. He calls us by name. Our sins are forgiven. Uh, there's no condemnation for us. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Uh, but all of us have to know, what has God said? What are those promises that we need to lay hold of? We have to live by faith or we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble because we operate out of fear. We're left to ourselves and that always bodes trouble. The second point of application would be this. Abraham was meant to be a blessing. And he actually ended up cursing the nations, cursing the people God meant him to bless. We, like Abraham, are called to be a blessing to the world around us. Primarily that means, at least, that we're sharing the message of Jesus Christ with those we run into, that those we have contact with, go to school with, work with, whatever. Christ is the ultimate blessing, of course. And that's the way Abraham will ultimately bless the nations through his descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are called to be a blessing to the world around us. And you guys know that there's enough appropriate accusations against the church and against Christians that the world around us often point their finger at us like Abimelech did at Abraham rightly because we're blowing it. And so instead of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and instead of seeing that gospel affirmed so that we are a blessing to those around us, a lot of times the world's just pointing its fingers at us for the ways we blow it. Sometimes when I pray, my thoughts rise no higher than this. And this is high enough sometimes. Lord, help me not to blow it. Lord, help us not to dishonor your name. So that when we share the gospel, people can hear the message about Christ 
and not that would be detracted because of the way I'm living. That they're saying, yes, but you don't live it. I don't believe what you say because look at the way you live. So we are called like Abraham to be a blessing to the world around us. And that means that we should be communicating the message of Jesus Christ to the world around us. But it also means we should be adorning the message of the gospel by the way we live. And that means by faith. And then that means, in a sense, living like that model millionaire. Are we appearing like a beggar in the studio? Or are we living life like a model millionaire? And if we're going to be a blessing to the world around us, we need to look like, to the degree that we're able, the model millionaire. We need to behave like the model millionaire. Now, ultimately, that means putting on, Paul says it this way in Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Like a garment that I pick up Christ, so to speak. I pick up who he is, what he's done for me, the truth of the scriptures, and I put that on like a coat. And that's what I wear with me. And that's my millionaire clothing. It's Christ. It's not only his righteousness that I enjoy perfectly before the Father, but it's also the way he lived by faith, speaking the Father's words to those around him, being the blessing God called him to be. So lots of themes in Genesis 20, but when you think about this in the coming weeks, as I hope you will, uh, living by faith, choosing to reject fears unworthy of those who know, who know the Lord through faith in Christ, and also choosing to be a blessing to those around us, not acting in a way that dishonors Christ or the message of the gospel. Am I being honest? in my business dealings? Am I telling the truth to those I interact with? Am I being intentionally deceptive as Abraham was here? When I share the gospel, am I adorning the gospel? Or does my behavior detract from it? Do I look like the beggar? Or do I look like the model millionaire? Father, we all sin and, uh, and know this. Uh, day after day, time after time. Lord, sometimes in the same way, sometimes in one way after another way. But Lord, we know that you're at work in us through your Spirit, that you're at work to transform us into the image of your Son. And we ask you, Lord, by that power, the power of the risen Christ that resides in us now as those who believe in you, Lord, that you would so transform us, that you would help us to so fully put on your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we would, day by day, look like your Son, look like a model millionaire. Lord, that we would be a blessing to those around us by communicating what's true, that we would choose to live by faith, Lord, and not out of fear. Lord, overcome our weaknesses. Fill our minds with what's true. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen.